My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Nate Pettit is an award-winning professor at NYU in the Stern School of Business. He researches social hierarchies and underdogs and teaches classes on leadership. Nate was named to Poets and Quants 40 Most Outstanding MBA Professors Under 40. He received Stern's Distinguished Teaching Award, which is Stern's highest teaching honor, and has twice been voted Professor of the Year by MBA students. I hope you enjoy learning from Nate Pettit today, because I always do. Nate, it's so great to catch up with you again today. When I was interviewing at NYU for a postdoc position, You were so kind and helpful, just as everyone said you would be. So it's great to chat again today. It's great to chat with you. Um, And anytime we can, the Nates can join forces and try to, you know, inject some Nateness into the world. I'm always happy, but I I remember our discussion and um, and um, I'm glad to see you doing so well. Always hoping for some synergistic Nateness in the world. As, As you think back on your career, Nate, are there one to two simple, practical, underappreciated lessons you've learned uh, that you'd most like to pass along to others? Sure. Um, and if you don't mind, I'll kind of back into one of them with, in some the same way that I kind of backed into it myself with a with a story or experience. So it was the the summer, I believe, of 2020, 2012. And it was in my office, seventh floor of um, Stern Building. It's probably where we sat down for our one-on-one during our postdoc interview. And I was sitting there looking at my computer and about five o'clock in the afternoon, and I started to have this sensation. And the best way I can describe it is everything was both very familiar and simultaneously unfamiliar to me at the same time. So I knew where everything was in my office, but it was as if I was seeing all of those things for the first time. I knew where my books were, my code, um, all of that. And it was interesting. I remember looking at my, my monitor itself and I saw the little Dell logo at the bottom and I remember thinking Dell. And then like, what's Dell? Like, what does Dell do? And I was like, Dell. And I was like, huh, what's Dell? And I'm having this feeling and I'm also noticing that I'm kind of having some difficulty taking a deep breath. Um, and so I decided it's late in the day. I, I might as well just go outside and get some, get some fresh air. Who knows what's going on? I didn't think anything of it. And I walk out into the hallway and down into the elevators and I'm having all those same sensations. I know where everything is, but it's as if I'm seeing it all for the first time. And in the minute, 90 seconds that it takes me to walk out in the hallway, get in the elevator, go down into the plaza outside Stern, um, that sensation started to fall a little bit in the background. And now what I'm really focused on is the fact of like, why do I feel like my chest is tightening? And as I'm doing this, I'm also noticing like the, my fingertips are starting to tingle and I feel like my toes are like tingling as well. Um, and I, I get out in the plaza and I'm like, I don't like this at all. This is really, really unnerving. And I actually think to myself, like, you shouldn't go back to your office because on the off chance, something like weird happens to you. You want to be around other people. Um, but I'm still not super, super concerned. So I decided I'm going to go home. And at that point, we lived in faculty housing, which is literally just across the, uh, the street. And in the, again, we're talking in two minute interval, uh, I go from like tingling into my hands and my feet to like spreading like a rash up from my like fingertips into my arms and from my like 
feet up into my shins and my knees this like intense like tingling like where I feel like I'm, I'm almost like not able to touch or feel and this tightening in my chest is now to the point where I now feel this like shooting pain going down my left arm um, and shoulder and I'm thinking like holy crap like I'm 31 years old but these are like the signs that you're having a heart attack like that shouldn't be happening but this isn't good at all and I get into our, our foyer our entry in the faculty housing building and there's this lovely doorman there that worked there at the time still works there to this day his name's Frank I said Frank I don't think I'm doing well like I, I you know I, I'm having a hard time taking a deep breath I get this like shooting pain in my shoulder like everything's tingling like what do I do and he, he says to me, he's like, take a deep breath. You're going to be okay. Why don't you sit down? Um, and so I sit up down on the couch in the lobby and I, I start to feel like I'm going to pass out. And um, I'm not the type of person that yells um, really much at all in life. But I remember like standing up on the couch, which is weird to think about at the time. Cause it's like, if he's going to be able to see me cause I'm taller on the couch, I don't know. Um, but I end up just like pointing and I say, Frank, you need to call an ambulance. I'm having a heart attack. And he's like, okay, okay, I'll do that. And that's about the last thing I remember for a little while, because at this point I'd gone and I'd just pass out on the couch. And I couldn't have been out gone for that long, because um, as I'm kind of like coming to, there's people around me, there's a person kind of like taking my pulse, or like someone like checking my eyes. Um, and I'm just like, holy crap, like this is, this is it. Like maybe I'm going to die. And I feel like I can't breathe. Like, and I feel like somebody's like standing on my chest. And I am so convinced at that moment that I'm going to die that I actually uh, pull out my cell phone and I pull up a picture of my then one-year-old daughter because I think to myself, like, if I'm going to die right now, I want her to be the last thing I'm looking at. Wow. And I do that simultaneously knowing that she's only, you know, 10 floors above with our nanny. But I think to myself, like, I don't want to go up there because on the off chance I were to die in front of her, I don't want her growing up yeah. knowing that that happened. And so these are like really terrifying thoughts to be having and really believing. Um, so soon after I pass out again um, and I come to, and I find myself in the back of an ambulance and my wife had shown up at some point, I don't know when, um, but like, you know, I hear the sirens. I have a sense of like, you know, we're moving through lower Manhattan um, and I'm just like yelling out, like, what's happening to me? What's happening to me? What's going on? Um, we get to the hospital and it's kind of like a little fuzzy getting into the hospital. I remember being like wheeled on the stretcher somewhere. And again, like I, I lose consciousness. And a little while later, I remember coming to, and as I opened my eyes, I guess I expected that it, like it would be really chaotic. Like I expected that I'd be in like the emergency room or like cardiology or something like that. I expected there'd be a lot of noise and frantic and people around. Um, but like, it's so still. And I'm like, hmm, is this what death feels like? <laughs> Everything's still and peaceful. Uh, but it turns out that I'm not in the ER, I'm not in cardiology or any of those things. I'm actually uh, in the psych room because I had had a 9.9 .9 on the Richter scale panic attack. And panic attacks, um, interestingly enough, for you know yourself or any listener that's had them, are absolutely terrifying, like at that scale, but actually not all that dangerous, at least to you physically. 
And so I'm in this area of the hospital. A few attendings come and, and talk to me about like what's going on. They check a whole bunch of vitals. They do heart, all of that stuff. They're like, your heart's fine. Your lungs are fine. Like you're a little dehydrated, but you know, you're okay. Um, and we're walking. So I get probably like two hours later, I get discharged and my wife and I are uh, walking back through lower Manhattan on like one of these like just stunningly beautiful New York nights where it's like 74 degrees, like the city has all this energy, the lights are out. And all I can think is in the absence of like any chemicals in my system, my brain has the ability to do that, which is a really like terrifying realization that that's on offer um, without any warning. And, um, so luckily, like we have really supportive families and my, um, you know, we tell a few people about it and we get a lot of advice and it's a variety of different things around look, Nate, like working out used to be a big thing for you. You don't do it much anymore. That's going to help. Like maybe you should see a therapist. Like I've been drinking a lot at the time to kind of cope with stress of like first year as a faculty member and not, you know, proud of it, but you know, that can contribute. Um, I remember talking to my brother, Brian, and he's like, dude, like, you gotta get back to the gym. Look at yourself. You're disgusting. (laughs) Um, and, um, you know, we started to do some of those things where it was like, yeah, I started working out a little bit more, drinking less, trying to eat better. But I still had this like lingering feeling that that was going to happen again. And so you're walking around like wondering when that's going to happen. So about a month later, we're back kind of scene of the crime. I'm in my office and there's this PhD student who's like close with at the the time. And uh, she she asked me how things were going. And I said, tell, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll tell her. So I told her the same story about the panic attack that I probably told 20 times. And um, this time, instead of getting advice, all she said was, take your time, say more about that. And with that opening, I started to all of a sudden say a set of things that were more true to what was going on with me um, than uh, I even realized. And I got to the end of that and she said, it's all right, you got all the time and time you need, go on. And I started to say more and I started to realize what was actually kind of really going on with me. Turns out she just finished her master's degree with probably the foremost authority in the field of management on the field on the um, on the benefits of, of listening in the workplace context. Avi Kluger, Avi Kluger at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and so I had this like crazy powerful experience. And so I started to like look into the literature on listening, both from like a research standpoint, but even more so from a pedagogical standpoint. Um, there's this article called by Brink and Cost again, I think it's 2004 or 2014 Academy of Management Learning and Education. It looks how we don't even bother, like, like the idea of listening is like, we bury it as a learning goal in MBA curriculums and we put privilege presenting, but it turns out if you look at what matters in the workplace, our priority structure is completely flipped from what actually matters in the, in, out in the real world where listening is by, rated by managers as by far ahead of the notion of presenting. Um, and so because of this, I um, developed a whole class like focused on this idea of leading through listening and put students through really intensive listening exercises 
um, try to shine a spotlight on listening, not just as, you know, we listen to people so that we can relate, we listen to people so that we can glean information, we listen to people so we can evaluate, but to say another important reason to listen, and this is me very much borrowing what Avi um, and others have said, is an important reason to listen is listening to another person so that they can hear themselves mm. and trying to trying to insert that into our MBA curriculum and even infuse that into the culture at Stern has been, um, you know, really a goal of mine. And I, and I have to say, I think we're, we're succeeding at it um, kind of over the last decade um, at NYU. What a powerful, scary, interesting story. And I'm so curious on what you've learned in terms of listening. Like, how do we listen? And what do we need to do better? And where do we so often fall short? Sure. Yeah. Um, what I'd like to say is um, the, the exercise I do with my students, I'll, I'll actually give them questions and then um, basically I'll set a timer. And so for instance, one of the, one of the questions that's kind of difficult, like if we were doing this together would be, what is, what's something that you wish other people understood about you? And I'll give them five minutes to speak on that question. And their partner only has one rule. And that is that they can't interrupt or talk at all. It's all your space to speak. And so what we find and ends up happening is usually for any question, you could ask me like all sorts of stuff, like what's it like being a dad? What's it like working at Stern? What's it like being a faculty member? What's it like living in New Jersey? Mediocre. Um, you know, like ask any of those questions. My initial answer is usually just the quick elevator pitch. It's probably something that I've said previously when I answered that question. But the dictates kind of of a normal conversation are like, I talk, you talk. Yeah. I talk, you talk. But when there's that pause, and then all of a sudden it doesn't bother to the other person that's when I start to say stuff that's actually real because then I'm really thinking about the answer to that question rather than using my memory and using thought. And um, we start to go deeper. We start to elaborate. We start to sometimes say things that catch us off guard. We're like, wow, I didn't expect, I didn't know that I thought that. And so there's this phrase I'd like to use with my students, which is truth comes after the pause. Um, but yet we systematically kind of rob ourselves of that pretty frequently now it's i i would say you can't constantly go into these conversations you know someone says something and then immediately like say more take your time <laughs> like constantly doing that um but because sometimes people are looking for advice right um sometimes people are um from managerial context looking for like an evaluation or your opinion or something but the thing that I, I like to say is that if you ask me a question and say hey i want your opinion on something chances are the entire time that you're talking i'm simultaneously trying to track what you're saying but i'm also trying to conjure what is my opinion of this yeah. and what advice will i give and it's kind of like a laptop or a regular computer where like you know right now i have zoom up uh, but I also have PowerPoint up, um, and I also have Excel up. 
those two are taking up processing power in the background of my computer. When I'm thinking about trying to give you advice while you're speaking, it's compromising my ability to really hear all that you are saying. So the quality of advice that I'm likely to be able to give is going to be enhanced if the first iteration is I'm simply trying to take in everything you're saying. I'm not even thinking about the advice that I'm giving. I'm going to be able to hear far better if I pull back on the idea of, um, of advice. There's also this idea that, um, you know, like people have this remarkable ability, and this is straight out of like um, Carl Rogers. Like people have a remarkable ability to solve their own problems if someone's willing to draw those answers out of them through listening. Um, you know, what an empowering experience it would be for uh, an employee who goes to their manager, their manager simply asks them a bunch of questions and says, you know, tell me more about that, you know, take your time, like really flush that out. If the employee in the process of doing that actually figures out the answer themselves versus it being told to them by the manager. Um, it's both empowering to the employee and their own efficacy, and it's also potentially a time saver for the manager in the future because that person had, believes that they can solve the thing that they um, that they uh, they came with. In terms of sorry, real quick, the last thing I'll say about that is in terms of taking out in the wild. I, I like to say that like you these three magic phrases like take your time, say more, and go on. And if you do a round or two of that, then you can give advice, then you can offer insight, what, you know, then you can, you know, invite other voices in. Um, but typically we truncate these things so fast because we're just like, I better hurry up and finish the statement because in three, two, one, I'm going to be interrupted. And I was yeah. right. So I am so excited to well, one that I'm recording this conversation so that I can listen again, <laughs> because yeah. I know, I mean, uh, you know, I'm doing a podcast. So I'm like trying to just focus on what you're saying. I've got all these thoughts. I'm trying to think what I'm going to say back, but I love this idea of first pass, just listen. I love the idea of those magic phrases. Take your time, say more, go on. Mm-hmm. And this idea that if I'm constantly thinking about what I'm going to say next. I'm probably just enacting some sort of script. Like you say something that reminds me of something, but if I'm really listening, then I have the chance to think and react in a deeper, more thoughtful way. Um, What I probably should have said, you know, after you stopped, of course, was I should have said, you know, go on, say more. (laughs) Here I am, (laughs) you know, just reacting. To what you said, I also want to be sensitive to your time. Um, A couple of questions. One, would you be willing to share your materials with me um, that that you use to uh, help people listen better? Because I teach leadership and, you know, I'll I'll spend a minute on, you know, seek first to understand and then to, you know, be understood. But we're just so bad at it. And so first off, I'd be more than happy to. And, I, and I, again, I have to shout out both um, Avi Kluger, Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and then this doctoral student who was at Stern. And really, I mean, she is, if you're ever with someone who you're like, they're an amazing listener, like she is, in, like just is, has this in spades. And I, I think it's partially her training. I think it's partially just her. Her name is Anat Hurwitz. 
um she's incredible and you have like you get done with conversations with her and you're like wow I feel heard for the first time in a decade and I just like met you like 10 minutes ago it's crazy wow um so the the materials I mean I I'm happy to share but the credit really should go to to Avi Kluger and and Anad as well and but I know both of them are looking to spread the good words so like there's I don't think they I know they have no feeling that this should be you know kept as proprietary or anything uh, like that so that's awesome. I this is now going to become one of my new lifetime goals. I mean, just to hear the power and effect that being a good listener had on you and can have. Uh, I'm really excited about this. I'm really excited to dig into this research, use these questions, um, and try to model this behavior. And maybe last question for you. Um, you know, this has all been about listening. In terms of panic attacks, you I mean, I, I know you could talk a lot more about that. Um, have you been able, you know, what have you done to be able to comfort yourself and hopefully reduce the likeliness of uh, this happening too frequently? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I probably tell that story because you know, it sinks really well into the idea of listening and like how my first real experience with that was, was born out of this uh, kind of really uncomfortable scenario with panic. Uh, but I tell it secondarily to just, there's so many, so many of us that are dealing with issues around mental health and wellness. And yet it's still, even in 2023 feels occasionally like unsafe to share that stuff. Um, so I feel like the, to, to just try to you know, be yet another voice to normalize it. And I'm certainly not the torchbearer for it or of any importance whatsoever. But, um, but I, I just want to say, like, thank, I appreciate you asking that question. For me, it's, the recipe actually isn't really that difficult once I figured it out. And I wish I had some, some um, super sage advice but for me it's it's almost a certainty if i am not exercising if i'm drinking too much and i'm not sleeping particularly well we will we're going to have a panic attack in the next 30 days wow. like it's just basically you put those three things together line them up and it'll happen um but the good news is that i've never had a panic attack when i'm uh, coping well with each one of those three things. And so there's certainly a sleep exercise and substance uh, issue like that trifecta for me if I if I handle them well, there's, I've never, you know, even come close. One thing that is so scary about panic attacks that feeds itself is that a really intense panic attack can make can feel like you're dying. And so that like the feeling of like death certainly isn't a comforting feeling. So it's not, of course, that feeds upon itself. So when I, I've never had a one that's hit that level since, in part because I'm able to identify that this is panic and that keeps it going, keeps it from hitting the nine out of 10, 10 out of 10 levels. I've still had some sevens and eights and sevens and eights are plenty scary. <laughs> But just the knowledge that it's a panic attack keeps it from uh, getting the heck out of, or um, you know, from uh, from escalating too much. There is Andrew Huberman, who's a really big podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, is an Andrew a lot. This thing called the physiological sigh, 
I think he calls it like the I'm not sure if he didn't come up with it, but it's um he's he's broadcasting it. And um I've been trying that in moments of anxiety. It's basically like two, I believe it's kind of like two quick exhales and then like an inhale. Um, and apparently something about that pattern of breathing is makes it very difficult for anxiety to continue. It has something to do with the ratio of I don't know, oxygen. I think it's like blood leaving our heart and then coming back in. I, please don't quote me on the science. It's just the <laughs> physiological side. And um, I've been playing with that a little bit, and I can see it having some sort of effect. But the problem is, as academics, like we're we make money with our brain, yeah. and so we try really hard to think our way out of everything, into and out of all sorts of stuff. And uh, that's at least for me, that's never been a particularly good way of getting out of a panic attack when your brain is already hijacked by panic. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you got somebody, you know, the, the person who's taken over the wheel is not the one you want driving at that point. Well, I am so intrigued by this. I've really got onto a kind of Andrew Huberman and Peter Atia kick lately. I don't know if you've been listening to Peter Atia, but, you know, just mm -hmm. like become obsessed with, you know, exercise, diet, and sleep, this magic trifecta in terms of, uh, happiness today and longevity for later, um, so really interesting to hear that that's been effective for you. And then uh, maybe just one of the last things I'll say, I heard something decades ago and the, the idea was assume everybody that you meet is in grave kind of spiritual, emotional, psychological, physical danger, and you'll be right more than half the time. And so I, I appreciate you opening up, being vulnerable, sharing such a personal experience to um, one teach us such an interesting lesson and hopefully helpful lesson about listening um, but two to provide hope and guidance and normalize this for all of us who uh, are dealing or will deal with something similar at some point absolutely i mean thank you for providing a platform for doing so well great stuff you've inspired me you've like i mean you've you've piqued my curiosity and and I can't wait to dig into this and learn more and then share with my students. So this podcast episode, uh, if it's not assigned listening in my classes, I will uh, assign portions or we'll play it in class. So again, I just really appreciate you sharing your time with me, Nate, and uh, making my life better. No trouble. Thank you for doing so. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. Nate Pettit is a master teacher and storyteller, and we just witnessed that firsthand today. As he described that terrifying experience in which he believed he was dying, I was hanging on every word, and I'm especially grateful that he is still here with us and that we can learn such important lessons from him. First, instead of giving others advice, there is incredible power in the words, take your time, say more, go on. Thanks to the incredible listening skills of Anat Hurwitz, which she learned in part from Avi Kluger, Nate had this, quote, crazy powerful experience in which he said things that were more true than he'd ever said before, and he was able to realize what was really going on inside of him. Second, in the workplace, we often prioritize presenting skills or even conversing skills over listening skills, but the research shows that of the three types of communication skills, listening skills are most important, which led Nate to develop a class called Leading Through Listening. Third, it's important to listen to others to relate to them, 
to glean information and to evaluate that information. But another important reason we listen is so that people can hear themselves. People have a remarkable ability to solve their own problems if someone is able and willing to draw those answers out of them through effective listening. Finally, truth comes after the pause, when we exclusively focus on what people are saying, rather than thinking about how to respond. And then, when people finish speaking, we pause to let them continue. We can use thought to respond instead of memory, which helps us go much deeper and even say things that catch us off guard. What an incredibly powerful story Nate shared with us today. I hope we can all learn from Nate's lessons and unlock the power of effective listening. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with three quick requests. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. And finally, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thanks for your support.